0: Hello and welcome to the Securities Compliance Podcast presented by the National Society of Compliance Professionals where it is our mission to help you put compliance in context. Let's begin today with a little bit of housekeeping. First, I'd like to extend a sincere thank you to the outpouring of support we've received for all the fantastic outreach from many of our listeners on podcast.com, Apple Podcasts, and LinkedIn. We have heard your feedback and have already made a few little adjustments to help enhance your listening experience. First, we will start off each episode with a little preview of the segments to follow. In today's show, we'll take a look at the ever-controversial issue of CCO liability and discuss some recent remarks from SEC Commissioner Peirce. Our feature interview today will highlight Rob Kaplan and Bruce Carpati to discuss the origin story of the SEC's Asset Management Unit. And in today's final segment, we will conclude with another installment of the History Has Your Back series, where we will do a deep look into history at the writings of Caesar de Cicero during the Great Roman Civil War to help us shine a light on an opportunity for personal and professional growth. In addition, our standard shows, like the ones you've been listening to so far, are typically going to be on about a two-week cadence, with each pod dropping on Tuesday. We've also heard that you want more from the podcast, and so we've taken that to heart a little bit. First, on shows like today, where the guests are running hot and the conversation is good, we may do extended interviews with some bonus content. Today's origin story interview is one that you won't want to miss. So in addition to our customary episode, like the one you're listening to now, we are also working with the NSCP to design a compliance masterclass miniseries covering a wide range of topics that will be exclusive just for NSCP members. Finally, we will also be debuting the Lessons from the Frontline series that will provide practical advice and takeaways that focus on a real life, tough lesson learned through other compliance professionals and regulators that have lived and learned on the front lines of our industry. More to come on both of these down the road and in the months ahead. But just know that in the interim, we will always continue to deliver the same great content you've heard in these first few episodes every two weeks. The last adjustment to the show, and in a concerted effort to make sure we avoid any dead space or awkward noises on my part, we're also going to start providing a little bit of buffer music between the segments for ease and clarity. Finally, please, please continue to hit us up on LinkedIn, Twitter, And please leave us a rating or review on iTunes or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. As we mentioned in the intro episode, none of us alone are ever going to be as smart as all of us together. All right, let's jump into some headlines, which on today's show is going to focus exclusively on the issue of CCO liability. In remarks before the National Society of Compliance Professionals, SEC Commissioner Peirce encouraged additional clarification on the potential liability faced by compliance officers everywhere in the execution of their responsibilities. Throughout her speech, she referenced SEC Enforcement Director Andrew Ceresny's categorization of the circumstances in which the SEC has charged compliance officers. Number one, the participation of a compliance officer in the misconduct. Number two, the obstruction of SEC staff by a compliance officer. And then three, the, quote, wholesale failure of a compliance officer to carry out their responsibility. Ms. Peirce focused on the third prong as the one that typically generates the most controversy using, what I might add, was a wonderful take on the classic nursery rhyme for want of a nail. Ms. Peirce said that using the presence of an act or omission that a compliance officer, quote, should have known as the sole determining factor for finding fault may be overly aggressive and she starts to shift the blame from a company's wrongdoings over to its compliance officer. Furthermore, Ms. Peirce stated that the Advisors Act's compliance rule exacerbates the liability imbalance between compliance officers and their firms as the rule supports negligence-based charges, which places, again, responsibility on a compliance officer for causing a violation by virtue of not knowing to stop a violation that did not require intent. Ms. Peirce cautioned that placing this unfair liability on compliance officers for the violations of their firms may encourage compliance officers to obscure failures rather than openly fix them for fear of being subject to career-altering enforcement action. To help address the liability imbalance, Ms. Peirce recommended a couple different things. Number one, that the SEC provide a framework that allows for far greater context in the staff's decisions to charge or not charge compliance officers in order to provide a more detailed image right, of what the compliance officer should make sure to avoid what a wholesale compliance failure means and how to avoid one. Number two, Ms. Peirce suggested that the SEC provide significant guidance and context regarding the circumstances whenever it does bring an enforcement action against the compliance officer to more accurately demonstrate where the failure actually occurred. And finally, number three, Ms. Peirce encouraged the SEC to revisit the Advisors Act and the Investment Company Act compliance rules. Finally, Ms. Peirce also recommended the possibility of forming a public-private advisory group, similar to the SEC's Investor Small Business Asset Management Equity and Fixed Income Advisory Committees. In general, I find SEC Commissioner purse's position on this to be a really refreshing take on an issue that can often make many of our compliance sisters and brothers feel quite uneasy. The open-ended, potential for liability can often discourage many, many talented individuals from accepting the role of Chief Compliance Officer. I hope Ms. Pearce is successful in forming her committee and in continuing to generate an ongoing dialogue regarding the essential role of compliance officers in our markets and in the investment management industry as a whole. As we move into the interview section of today's podcast, I am incredibly excited to welcome with us. Two incredible guests, and we'll get to talk to them both here about the founding, the origin story of the SEC's Asset Management Unit. First, I would like to introduce Rob Kaplan, who is a partner at Debevoise and Plimpton. Rob is a litigation partner in the firm's Washington, D.C. office. He has significant experience with a broad range of securities-related enforcement and compliance issues. Prior to joining Debevoise. Mr. Kaplan was the founding co-chief of the Asset Management Unit of the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission's Division of Enforcement. In this role, he, led a, he co-led a team of 75 lawyers and industry experts focused on investigations related to potential violations of federal securities laws. And he partnered with senior leadership and other divisions of the SEC to help establish some of the law enforcement priorities in the asset management industry. During his 17-year tenure at the SEC's Division of Enforcement, Mr. Kaplan served as Assistant Director from 2004 to 2010, Assistant Chief Litigation Counsel, Staff Attorney, and Senior Counsel. Welcome, Rob Kaplan. Uh, thanks, Patrick, I'm happy to be here. And I would also like to introduce Mr. Bruce Carpati For those NSCP members, everybody knows Bruce, uh, just recently passed the torch as the Chair of the Board of Trustees. Bruce also serves as the Global Chief Compliance Officer for KKR, and prior to joining KKR, he was the Chief Compliance Officer of Prudential Investments, the mutual fund and distribution business of Prudential Financial. He was also, as I mentioned uh, earlier at the top, the National Chief of the SEC's Asset Management Unit, which he co-founded. In this role, like Mr. Kaplan, he supervised the Office of 75 Attorneys, Industry Experts, and other professionals. Mr. Carpatti had joined the SEC as a staff attorney in 2000 and was promoted to Branch Chief in 2002, Assistant Regional Director in 2005, and then Co-Chief of the Asset Management Unit in 2010. Mr. Carpatti, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Patrick. Happy to be here. So I am really, really excited for all of the listeners to today's podcast to get to hear from the founding members themselves about a true origin story of the SEC's Asset Management Unit. And what an incredible story and uh, division. Obviously, I think we're celebrating the 10th anniversary. Is that right, gentlemen?
1: That is right. That is right. You know, I can remember the day, January, what, 10th,
0: 2010? Yeah, Rob. Yeah, F- Fantastic. Well, I know that the Asset Management Unit has had an incredible impact across the industry in a variety of different areas. Before we start talking about how it's evolved over time, I would love to hear from you both just a little bit more about the origin story, right? Tell us a little bit about the background. How, how did it come to be that the SEC was like thinking, okay, this is an area that we definitely need to create a, a, a new unit for?
2: So um, yeah. I'm happy to, to give that a shot or at least give some of the background. And, well, I mean, I, I
1: Rob, I'll have the much more informed answer. So why don't you go ahead first? Okay, fair enough.
2: Yeah, if you just to set the scene, right, this was, uh, although founded uh, in uh, early 2010, this had been something under consideration for the better part of a year. And not just the asset management unit, but um, the creation of specialized units within the division of enforcement. And it was a product of really... An unfortunate uh, a coincidence of two, I think, sort of reputationally adverse issues that hit the SEC. First was the Bernie uh, Madoff anzi scheme, which had, uh, you know, been uh, the subject of a review uh, by the SEC staff on several occasions, as people know, uh, prior to the time that uh, it collapsed and was exposed, and as well as the financial crisis. and uh, both of those put uh, enormous pressure on the SEC and i think posed in some ways an existential threat to views of its efficacy in a way that i think had not really previously been posed by, before and there was a, a new director was brought in rob kazami was brought in to be the director of the division of enforcement and there was a view that there needed to be a not only a sort of a refocusing but really structural changes in the division of enforcement You know, things had proceeded pretty much the way the division had been structured for decades at at the point that this had happened. And so, you know, I think people certainly hoped in leadership uh, that the units, all of them, would be um, effective in uh, refocusing the agency. But I think there's something to be said. For the view that they had to do something because there were live discussions about whether the agency would be merged into, you know, with the CFTC or it would otherwise lose its role as an independent agency. And I think, you know, the goal first and foremost was to show evidence of change, and then maybe hope that it would change. And so that sort of sets the table for the discussion. And you know, Bruce, if you want to pick it up there, um,
1: sort of what (laughs) happened next. Yeah, no, and 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 Rob, I, I exactly agree with you. I I would actually want to talk a little bit about the origins, right? Even before call it financial crisis and Madoff, Rob and I had both been involved in the asset management space, and I think the things that we would clearly say from that vantage point, right? And to me, the SEC is probably the single most impactful part of my career in the sense that. I got so much out of it, and there was so much in my early career at the SEC, because I started 2000, where, frankly, I think Rob and I both gained a lot of expertise. But if you look at the two big things that Rob discussed, Madoff and the financial crisis, what comes out of that was there was a lack of expertise. And when we were there prior to the financial crisis, there were... Clearly, a lot of expert lawyers, as it relates to our capital markets and enforcement and corp fin and investment management, but there was not the expertise that you would expect. And then I think the organization of how things ran, and and when Rob Kuzami came in, and Rob and I were fortunate enough to get the role as co-chief. You know, the the mentality changed that. You know, there could be more organization around how you did things. There could be more expertise. And frankly, there could be a lot more aggressiveness because we had to act quickly. And so the precipitous, like Rob said, were these defining events. But a lot of it really has the inception for us, I think, was before that when there was a lot going on and you could see that there were real issues.
0: That's a really interesting point. Let's let's dig into that a little bit specifically, if the SEC then right starts to recognize, hey, maybe we need to bring in a little bit more robust expertise in certain areas, and, and they, they realize, okay, this is definitely an area where we see an opportunity, how did the agency go about doing it, right? How, how did you start to execute on building that team of experts, and and how did you figure out how you were going to organize it? Yeah, I mean, that was a real challenge. I mean, and again, those
2: those two vectors that we were talking about you know, one of the criticisms of the agency, um, as a as a result of or as a consequence of of the Madoff issue, was this lack of expertise. So it wasn't just a view, as you know, or it was more than just a view that we needed to get smarter, but we needed to get smarter because here was a very public instance where we had not gotten smarter. And so I think actually most divisions, though they didn't all reorganize the way the division of enforcement reorganized, sort of had a similar commitment. So that in the division of investment management, they had brought in. Some additional fellows, you know, Dodd-Frank had passed, and private funds were now going to be required to be registered. Some, of course, had been registered on their own volition previously, but had been required to be registered for the first time. And there was a view that we're taking on this huge registrant population, and uh, boy, it would sure be good to know something about them. So one of the things I think that we were lucky, and I think we sort of asked for, although it wasn't a hard sell, was the authority to hire five industry experts. I, was, I actually Bruce, you may remember, I'm not sure if we said we needed them and they said, how many
1: do you need? Well in the inception of this and and again there were so many people who were thinking the same way. So I don't think Rob and I had exclusive thoughts around this, but we felt, you know, through some of the workings around private funds and hedge funds that we frankly needed expertise to really get more to the bottom of issues. And so we requested those five industry experts and we made it part of our strategic plan and very much focused on creating a plan of action around this unit that was a long-term process. And that meant out of the box, having industry experts and developing expertise in, in the unit. And so when we thought about the five experts, we thought about the fundamental areas of investment management. That was mutual funds. That was hedge funds, that was private equity, that was portfolio management. And so it's quite remarkable when you think back and you look at the impact as it relates to those experts, because some of them are still there. Quite a few impactful areas of scrutiny came out of those industry experts. And the the other piece, by the way, Patrick, which was, I thought,
2: uh, really ended up being incredibly valuable, is for each person um, who was in the unit? Each new staff attorney. Remember, these were not new hires. The staff attorneys; they were existing members of the staff who wanted to commit to something brand new. This, and you know, and the idea is, okay, you're not going to really do, uh, you're not going to do, uh, uh, you know, uh, public accounting fraud anymore. Uh, you're probably not going to do insider trading cases anymore. You're, you know, not going to do hardcore broker dealer cases. You're just going to do one thing. And I don't think. It's easy to really convey how game-changing that was to try to attract staff attorneys. But I think people were looking for an opportunity to contribute differently. And Bruce insisted in a way that I thought was uh, uh, punitive at the time, but in <laughs> retrospect, uh, and shortly after, right? I don't mean sitting back 10 years later. I mean, at the time, it was the right thing was that each staff attorney had to develop expertise in a particular topic. Remember, then we came up with a list of like 60, 70 things. And some people got valuation, but like some some poor guy got like custody. But like, these were things we knew nothing about. So, you know, at the time it it, it did not make, I was not as enthusiastic a fan uh, as Bruce was of telling each staff attorney to basically go out into the commission or into the world. Actually, it wasn't just the commission and say, learn about this, you know, learn about custody or learn about prime banking relationships, things that I mean we just really didn't have the kind of expertise within the division of enforcement, or at least there wasn't the kind of knowledge, organized knowledge management. And, and we set up a database an enormous sort of SharePoint site, which, you know, for the government 10 years ago, not everybody was doing this kind of KM work on all of these topics. And people had to present present. at weekly meetings.
1: I wanted, I wanted to get in a point around, we were so long-term thinkers, honestly, that, uh, we did. We had an operating plan right out of right out of the box, which said, "Here are the experts. Here's how we're going to organize. Here's how we're going to specialize." And then we went out and we we executed. And I think we were pretty after a few months. We were pretty nervous because there hadn't been any cases. I remember at the time, other units were bringing cases, and we hadn't brought our first case. But before you you knew it, there actually was. Then call it different areas where we were really making an impact, whether it was um, what we called aberrational performance in the hedge fund space, or the mutual fund 15C process, right? Or 20647 as relates to compliance programs. So that I, I do think that long-term thinking benefited, ultimately, the, the, the unit in terms of being able to think differently around issues because normally, Patrick, right, you would be driven off of here's a complaint comes in and let's just go look at it. It's very reactive. Right. We were able to some degree to turn that on its head and say, let's not be reactive. Let's uh, obviously be proactive as it relates to these types of issues and go after those issues. And
2: then the other piece that I thought was interesting is that we were able to do things that were not done routinely before. And so um, although I'm, I'm not Quite so sure. It's it's unfair to say that in private practice I've regretted some of the progeny of these steps that we took. But we would uh, sit down regularly in D.C. with the national exam program, and they would tell us what they were seeing, and we would tell them what we thought was interesting, and they would go look for some things. And it was really a partnership. Or we would talk to I.M. and we would say, "What is important to you? What would you like to see?" And you know, we would have conversations, and people would say, "You know, we you know we would really be interested in seeing a case about." And they would fill in the blank. And then we would, you know, about 15, the 15C process. There really haven't been cases about the 15C process. And so we would launch these initiatives. And it was a degree of sort of much more easy interaction between OC, IM, the Division of Investment Management, and uh, enforcement than I think there had been before. Again, I, I don't mean to say like nobody had thought of these things before we launched the unit. I'm just saying it just happened more. And there certainly were permutations of that that, that just, I don't think it happened before. And you know, we had great partners in all of those uh, divisions that were interested in doing that. So I think it was those kinds of process improvements, which were actually much more important indicia of success than any particular case that was brought. To Bruce's point.
0: Yeah. What I like about one, thank you both for that, for that additional context. I think that's again kind of fantastic stuff for a lot of folks that are that are really interested in kind of hearing about the development of the asset management unit. It it leads me to two additional questions, though. One is and, and Bruce and Rob, you both have touched on this a little bit, which is, you know, the types of cases, right, that you were looking at and, and then how those types of cases ultimately, you know, influence the industry in different ways or were, were impactful in the industry. And the other thing that strikes me as part of that, too, is to your point, Rob, about the collaboration, right, between the different divisions at the SEC. I mean, I think a hallmark of the some of the recent activity from the SEC, whether it's from you know enforcement and and then OC partnering now, right? We just talked about it at the NSCP national uh, at the national virtual conference that you've got this new liaison office between the division of investment management and and then OC, right? And you can kind of see some of the seeds of that in what it sounds like you all were doing. I think that's exactly right. We 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 were
1: very much focused on you know leveraging expertise elsewhere and also frankly just collaborating across uh d- different different divisions so that at the outset was super important to both to both rob and i and i think if you look at how the unit has operated since with many of its initiatives it certainly is the case i didn't want to raise and, and uh, rob i'm sure you, you you have a lot to say about this i do think when i look back now at where we headed and the path we took, fundamental to it was conflicts of interest. Just whether 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 it was private funds, mutual funds, retail advisors, we, we were really looking at conflicts of interest and how advisors have to act in the best interests of their clients. And and that, you know, I don't know at the outset if that was if that was necessarily an intentional thing, but clearly the impact that the unit has has been in that space by far. I think that's right. I mean, you know,
2: to, to me, Patrick, the, the the biggest distinction, I think, is before both the unit and Dodd-Frank, if you look at the commission's cases that they had filed in the uh, with respect to private funds, they were almost always market related conduct cases so the relationship between the advisor and the market so insider trading or manipulative trading or you know shorting against the box or rule 105 violations you know those were overwhelmingly the inventory of cases the staff had brought very few instances where the staff got between an advisor a private fund advisor and their LPs and said you know, are you honoring the terms of your uh, agreement? Are you allocating expenses the way you told people? Are you calculating management fees? Uh, You know, what are you doing about broken deal expenses? What are you doing about affiliated relationships? You know, what is the nature of those disclosures? And, you know, I I think that has been, as Bruce said, that has probably been the defining uh, characteristic of the commission's um, asset management inventory. Um, There's certainly uh, in the private fund space i mean obviously there's been a big footprint in you know in in, in over the last a bunch of years in the in 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 uh, commission uh, in chair clayton's administration over retail and share class and issues like that but on the private fund side that's just not like a pivot i think that was whole cloth these kinds of conflict cases a new area of enforcement that just really had not existed before
1: you know when we go down and we start to think about where our experts And the expertise of the staff in the unit was really focused in on. It soon soon become evident that there were there were there were issues in that space, and that's why not to pick on any one industry, but whether it's mutual funds, private equity, hedge funds, as as I think back to that time, I mean there were there were issues that were uncovered through the work of the unit and the work of the exam staff that gave us opportunities you know rob is and and as far as initiatives go right we, we were very much focused on using data data analytics some key areas whether it was cherry picking and using data with regard to that whether it was our focus on mutual fund expenses and then of course as it relates to smoothing of returns by certain Types of hedge funds. So th- Those were, were all areas that come to mind. And then, of course, private equity and eventually our private equity expert really took steps and, and drove a lot of initiative around concerns as it relates to conflicts there.
0: So with regard to some of those topic areas that, that you just mentioned, Bruce, and, um, you know, maybe again, kind of a question for for both of you of those different topic areas that you've mentioned, you know, mutual funds, 15c, hedge funds, private funds, 20647, valuations, is there uh, i should say are there one or two areas in particular where you would say wow, the the asset management unit really influenced the direction that the industry went as it went as it related to one of those kind of one or two specific areas in a way where now If you, you know, now that we've got the hindsight of 2020, seeing where we're at in the year 2020, wow, the way the industry played out, what it really was affected by the the great work that we had done that ultimately led it to where it is today.
2: Yeah, I mean, look, I, I would say this, and, and I do a fair amount of work it, as in private practice as a, as a lawyer, not only as like a defense lawyer in the face of a commission review, but doing uh, proactive consulting on compliance issues. I think there is no population of market participant that I have found to be as sensitive to regulatory messaging. As uh, the private fund community, and so in terms of being impactful, and you know, when Bruce and I are talking about you know the cases and the things that interested us as as chiefs, you know, there were there have been several generations of chiefs since then who you know have been terrific and have focused on a lot of the same issues, uh, almost all of the same issues, and so. When I say that it's being impactful, this is not just about Bruce and I being impactful with the program, being impactful. But I will tell you from talking to people, when a case comes out, when a case came out about accelerated monitoring fees right in the private equity community, There's not a a self-respecting private equity firm that didn't say, what are we doing? What are our disclosures like? How do we, is this a problem and how do we cure this problem? Same thing for expense allocations. And, you know, the sheer amount of agonizing that I think a lot of private fund advisors do on these issues. And I think that, you know, the view is like, it's a pretty profitable asset class. And I think people wanna, you know, facilitate, The business side doing what they do best, which is making money by smart investing. And all of these other issues are important to them. They just want to get it right. And so I think that probably surprised me. I always sort of, I think, had the presumption as as an SEC lawyer that people don't want to get it right. They just don't want to get caught. And I think you sort of transition in that, like, I actually do believe in my heart of hearts. Like, none of this is blood on the floor, right? It's all. Questions of gradation of, you know, the quality of your disclosures, how you manage these conflicts. Staff is clear that the conflict doesn't actually have to hurt investors. It doesn't even have to be a real conflict. It just has to be a potential conflict. My point is, is that people want to get it right, and this is a very deterrible population. And I think all of these cases that messaging has had a dramatic, you know, defining impact on industry conduct.
0: Bruce, but I, I know you're gonna. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that too. I will definitely tell you, Rob, that. I I remember when some of those cases were coming out and I can tell you firsthand, there was a very healthy sense of fear that we needed to make sure with the, you know, the private equity, private fund advisors that I was supporting at the time to make sure that we were getting it right. You know, okay, wow, we just saw that case come out. How does that impact us and what do we need to adjust to make sure we're still in the white lines for sure?
1: perspective right and, and rob mentioned this i mean rob rob and i were fortunate to be in this role and i think again crediting our former boss rob Kuzami, in terms of setting the stage for all the units and then us taking that opportunity and then of course if you look at who's come out of the unit in terms of different people and where they've gone i i feel very fortunate to have been in the unit and i think there's so much productivity out of whether it was the chiefs the experts all the staff of the units of the unit going forward um, we have to mention that i'd also want, want to just say and this is important for this audience is the impact on compliance because yes the asset management unit is an enforcement mechanism i do think ultimately some of the positives that have come out and you know, 'm I'm, I'm representative of that clearly I'm in the investment industry now as a, as a compliance officer and I'm proud of it you know I think the industry has come a long way and some of the lessons that I learned around the asset management unit have been clearly applicable in the industry the industry's responded and if you look at a lot of us who've come out of the unit we've ended up in compliance and some of the things that I've learned and take it very seriously are around, you know whether it's conflicts of interest or um, how you set up your compliance program or the nature of the expertise that you put into place. I think we've all, we've all learned of uh, the importance of compliance, and I think the unit had a lot to do with that. And now I'm proud to be a member of really really the the compliance industry that uh, has a responsibility to
0: work on these issues. So. Let's do one more question on the asset management unit and then we'll I'd love to dive into a little bit of uh, of the NSCP private fund forum but but on the asset management unit you know again really awesome uh, to hear you both talk about it you know we are in the 10th uh, in the 10th year of the unit itself it's obviously functioning at a very high level and 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 impacting the industry in a variety of different positive ways where do you see it heading in the future? What are some specific areas that you think the asset management unit, you know, might start to to target? That, not tar, target's the wrong I'm word. Sorry. What are some areas where you think they might apply more resources because you see the industry moving a certain direction? Or do you see how, how do you see the asset management unit evolving in the future? So
2: look, I, I think it's hard it's hard to to tell. I think a, a priority Uh, Of the prior administration, as I think I mentioned, excuse me, of the current administration, as I mentioned earlier, has been uh, retail, and that has been a a strong driver. There's been an enormous dedication to sort of rev share and share class issues and and other distribution and mutual fund issues. I don't know that that's going to be. As much of a focus, if the administration turns, if, if, you know, Vice President Biden becomes the president of the United States and you have a, a new chair, just because priorities shift over time, you know, I it's always hard to predict where the staff is going. You know, I do think that asset managers have gotten so much more complex over the last 15, 20 years. The platforms have gotten bigger. The mix of products have gotten bigger. The number of clients have gotten bigger. And I think how people manage and Bruce could probably speak to this more eloquently than I can. But the you know, as people manage the issues of different kinds of asset classes, um, and you know, firms are really thinking about the sort of the synergies between different parts of the house, really for the benefit of investors. And, and I think, from their perspective, I think it just presents challenges. So I wouldn't be surprised if that gets. Gets more attention, but it's it's always a little hard to predict, you know what what those priorities are. If you actually look on a year over year basis, going back ten years, they really haven't. You know, there's more of an emphasis on cyber and things like that, but the priorities themselves at
1: core have not changed that dramatically. You know, to some of the history, right? I'd say out of the out of the box, there was a big focus on hedge funds and smooth returns, and then conflicts of interest, and then a move into the mutual fund and retail space, right? And that happened to coincide with the retail task force that was set up and there was a real focus by the chairman on retail, right? And so you see that continuing. I do think the industry is always evolving and front and center will always be conflicts of interest. I think the other big area, right, is use of technology and robo advisors. And of course, an area that we were focused on was quantitative trading and operational errors and trading errors and things like that so i think probably and i agree with rob it's it's sometimes hard to tell and there'll always be a reactive component but complex trading vehicles how they operate because frankly the, the more complex you get the easier it is to get wrapped up in right. in, 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 in 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 issues and i do think uh with a new administration we could find ourselves revisiting issues in the private fund space yeah. uh, as well.
0: So that that's a perfect segue into, for our listeners, uh, both Bruce and Rob are, are two of three or four co-hosts for the NSCP's private fund forum. They do an excellent job with that form that, that specifically focuses all, all the compliance issues that, that are involved in, you know, in the private fund space. I'm gonna ask you both to do uh, your best, you know, soothsayer impression here. You know, what? what's one thing that you're keeping your eye on here in the fourth quarter of 2020 into the first quarter of 2021 as it relates to the private fund space?
1: Valuation comes to mind, right? I think that is an area that increasingly, right, if you look at the first quarter of this year, Uh, when covid first hit clearly valuation was an issue i would have top of mind valuation type issues particularly if we enter volatile markets again and then of course long term around valuation and we've seen that be a perennial topic i think that will continue and i think it'll be one in the registered fund space as well So I'll
2: go less interesting. uh, I think so. You know when the all the COVID issues arose, starting in March, and there were a lot of questions about business continuity planning. And and the staff made a lot of public pronouncements about how you know that they are sort of in the trenches uh, with people and they're very available. And they actually did a fantastic job of being available and started asking questions about how. Uh, firms, whether it's from a broker dealer perspective, which you know is a little outside the four corners of this discussion, but how people are exercising their supervisory responsibilities. Here's what I'm looking for because I've seen it happen in so many other crises that we've had, which is when the dust actually settles and time goes by, all of the statements of the kind of kumbaya statements about how regulator and regulated are all together fade into the recesses of memory, and people are held accountable for the failures or what the government views in hindsight to be the failures of firms especially oh, as this did not turn out to be a 45 day covid problem but a multiple month problem i'm looking i'm looking to the real possibility that whether it's in 2021 or thereafter you're going to see cases about operational failures that resulted from people working remotely so less interesting than bruce is but i just you know i just think there's just too many targets of opportunity for the government and you know, whether it's representations people made about their COVID preparedness or the steps that they took or compliance issues that arose, I'm just looking for, uh, not forward to, but forward to a time where I think a less sympathetic commission staff is going to be looking at this year and making determinations that I think you would find surprising today and won't a year from now.
1: Yeah, and I I'd hate to try and get another chance at this, but I do think two, two issues, ESG that is going to come back at everyone over the next few years in a way that we haven't seen clearly the transition from liveboard to Sofer is,
0: is another topic
1: so uh, there's hey, plenty plenty of stuff that we'll have to talk about
0: real quick um, i'm gonna get you i'm gonna get you both out of here on this last question stones or beetles beetles
1: beetles too but that's an easy one for me <laughs>
0: rob bruce thank you both so much for taking the time to join us today this has been incredible enjoy uh, the the rest of your day and look forward to catching up with you here again soon at, at some point on the podcast
1: thank you I, I didn't have, thanks for having me i didn't get a chance to say the glowing things about rob that i planned to say but maybe well,
0: another time <laughs> <laughs> today's final segment features another installment in the history has your back series And today, we're going way back, like 2,000 years ago back. In 49 BC, Rome was in complete disarray, divided into a great civil war between two separate factions, one following Julius Caesar, Rome's best general, and the other following his old friend and ally turned enemy, Pompey, arguably Rome's most famous general. Caesar had recently crossed the Rubicon, thus coining the celebrated phrase, and leading to the political unrest between the aristocrats and senators, led by Pompey, and the populare nobles, farmers, veterans, and middle class, led by Caesar. Two months later in March, Caesar is trying to track down Pompey and his army, and in doing so is crossing the Italian countryside and is constantly running into and fighting with the aristocratic followers of Pompey. Pompey had even famously said during this time, essentially, anybody that isn't with me is against me. Caesar, however, took a different approach, a novel approach. Now, the ancient Romans weren't necessarily known for being a lenient people by any stretch. Just just ask the Carthaginians. And historians will debate whether this is actually who Caesar was as a person and how he saw the world, or if he simply saw this as a strategy to gain political advantage in a war where convincing others to join your side would likely spell victory, and this strategy just so happened to be benevolent. I won't get into the merits of that. It's the the position that Caesar took that is really of great import to me. So what does Caesar espouse? Well, for that, let's turn to a letter he writes Cicero. Quote, Let us see if in this way we can willingly win the support of all and gain a permanent victory, since through their cruelty others have been unable to escape hatred or make their victory lasting. This is a new way of conquest. We go strong through pity and generosity. Caesar decided that even to his enemies, even to those who would see him dead and gone, he would employ a strategy of mercy and empathy, not hatred or violence. In his mind's eye, this was the greatest way to show his true strength. Now, I normally wouldn't do this, but I will tell you now that I'm recording this podcast around dinnertime On election night and in this time where it feels like so much of our world is fueled by division and hate my hope is that no matter who wins later tonight or if we find that out tonight or no matter when we find out who wins that our country can rise above the cruelty and hatred we have seen over the course of the last few months and look to be merciful and compassionate to those across the aisle paraphrasing another quote from an earlier episode none of us alone will ever be as strong as all of us together. And many of the listeners might be saying now, okay, great, thanks Pat, that's a really nice thought. What does that have to do with compliance? Well, many times there may be individuals in our firms, (coughs) marketing, (coughs) that will often see us legal and compliance practitioners as the enemy. Approaching those persons with antagonism or disdain won't get you very far, and it certainly won't help advance the firm's compliance program. More often than not, what it will get you is it'll probably lead to future rebellious behavior or, at times, even a complete avoidance a, a, a complete avoidance of compliance altogether. The same is true for those that may have had a violation. Oftentimes, a compliance violation is born out of negligence or a lack of understanding, not any kind of violative intent. And so as we show these individuals understanding and empathy, many times we will actually gain credibility in their eyes and ultimately strength to lead the firm forward and elevate the services our firm provides. And that will do it for today's show. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Calfee and the National Society of Compliance Professionals and extend a big thank you to our guests, Rob Kaplan and Bruce Carpotti. Please join us again next time on the Securities Compliance Podcast, where we help you put compliance in context. You can like us and subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you find your favorite podcasts, or go to complianceandcontextpodcast.com to listen and learn more.